Engaging Leader Podcast, Episode 96, Bringing the Lean Startup into Your Organization, Leadership in the Age of Uncertainty, featuring Jeff Dyer. inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. Have you or your team ever come up with a big idea that you thought would be very cool but you didn't take any action because you thought it would be too risky? Perhaps it was an idea for a new product or service or a process change to solve a complex problem. Maybe you've tried to bring the idea to life only to have it turned out to be an expensive, time-consuming failure. The new book, The Innovator's Method, Bringing the Lean Startup into Your Organization by Nathan Furr and Jeff Dyer is a leader's guide to validating new ideas refining them, and bringing them to market. It presents a method for leveraging a set of tools that are emerging from lean startup, design thinking, and agile software development. Jeff Dyer's previous book, The Innovator's DNA, co-authored with Clayton Christensen and Hal Gregerson, is a bestseller. It's already been published in more than 13 languages, and it won the 2011 Innovation Book of the Year Award from the Chartered Management Institute. Jeff is professor of strategy at Brigham Young University and Wharton. He is co-founder of the consulting firm, The Innovator's DNA, and he gives speeches, consults, and conducts workshops and training programs in the areas of innovation, change, and strategy. He is the only strategy scholar in the world to have published five times in both Strategic Management Journal, which is the top academic journal devoted to strategy, and Harvard Business Review, the top practitioner journal. Jeff Dyer, welcome to The Engaging Leader. Thanks, Jesse. Glad to be here today. Jeff, your book is all about leading in an environment of uncertainty. Now, is that just a cliche that when you say that the world is more uncertain than ever before, or has uncertainty truly increased in the past two or three decades? Yeah, I think all of us have heard uh, the fact that the world is more uncertain today and and it has become cliche and we sort of believe it. But what I don't think we really appreciate is how much change has occurred. Let me just give you a little bit of information. About 40, 50 years ago, we were generating 100,000 patents per year in the U.S. Today, it's 600,000. So there's more technologies coming on stream than ever before at a faster rate. This increases technological uncertainty, which is the ability to create new and different solutions. On the demand side, we're finding that companies are offering things much more quickly and, and product mix is changing much faster. And that means actually company turnover is increasing. Whereas 50 years ago, if you made the Fortune 500 list, you would have been on that list for an average of 65 years. Now, if you make the list, you're only there for about 18 years. Wow. Yeah. And part of the reason for that is that we now have almost 100 million new businesses being launched each year worldwide, whereas we used to only have about 10 million. So an increase in startups, you know, by tenfold. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that China and India 
have emerged now in the global economy, and that's brought in 2.5 billion people who now can be entrepreneurs. So uncertainty really has increased a lot more than most of us realize. In the face of all that uncertainty, why is it that traditional management that's taught in MBA programs doesn't work if, if you're leading a team that needs to innovate? Yeah, that's a great question. So if we think about uncertainty, I'm going to talk about two types. One is demand uncertainty, which is uncertainty about customer preferences and what they're going to demand in the marketplace. Will they really want to buy this? And then there's technological uncertainty, which is can we come up with the technologies to deliver a solution? Now, when you go to business school, most MBA programs do not have required classes in product development. They don't really teach you how to create a customer. They don't teach you how to do experiments and A-B testing to see what will be accepted by customers in the marketplace or how to test different technological solutions. Most of it really was designed at the turn of the 20th century when the big corporations were emerging in the United States. And it's really designed to help you understand how to plan, how to execute, and how to optimize. But when you have a high uncertainty problem, planning isn't really possible. Um, at least you can't plan very effectively because your plan is basically a guess. What you need is an experiment to help resolve the uncertainty. So you need, instead of being a planner and an executor, you need to learn how to be an experimenter and a pivoter. And our uh, business schools really don't do a good job of teaching our students how to do that. So the conventional wisdom would be if you're going to launch a product, you need to put together a business plan for it. And in your book, you argue that is time-consuming and expensive and it doesn't actually reduce your risk. It, the, the, the world's going to change by the time you pull the trigger anyway. Absolutely. A business plan, you put down your best guesses, but all these are a bunch of guesses. And so it's really not worth very much. In fact, we found uh, studies that business plans uh, and, and an evaluation of whether it was a good or bad business plan has very little if no correlation with success down the road. So it's an exercise in futility. What you really want to do is you want to go and test your idea with a set of potential customers or in the marketplace to resolve the demand uncertainty, or you want to try the different technologies and run some pilots and some experiments and build some prototypes. And then once you've resolved some of the uncertainty about whether you have something that will work, then you're ready to think about writing a business plan and getting the capital to invest in it. So if you're leading a team, how does the role of leadership change? If, if traditional management doesn't work, what does work? Yeah, that's, a, that's also a very good question. So I think one of the big challenges um, that our typical leaders have in making the adjustment from really leading in a lower uncertainty environment or a, trying to solve a problem with lower uncertainty is that they're used to being the chief decision maker. And it's my job as the leader to make the decisions about this is the direction, here's where we're going to go, and I give answers to my team as to the direction we're going. When there's high uncertainty, you don't have the answers. And your guess is also only a guess. So Intuit, for example, a company that has really adopted the principles we describe in the innovator's method, Scott Cook, the founder and CEO, says, even I try not to make a decision about which direction we should go. 
I try and rephrase it as, I think this is, my hypothesis is, this is the direction we should go, but what's the experiment we can run to test my hypothesis? And then he becomes the chief experimenter in the company rather than the chief decision maker, helping design and facilitate experiments in the marketplace or inside his company that will sort of reveal the, the data, the analysis, the results that will then say, oh, yeah, this, is, this will work um, because we've tested the hypothesis uh, with an experiment and now we know the direction to run. So this requires a major shift in sort of uh, philosophy that uh, leaders are no longer chief decision makers. They now have to be chief experimenters. Because instead of being the planner and executor, you have to be an experimenter and a pivot. So that's sort of the philosophical change underpinning the book. And then the obvious question is, okay, so how do I make that happen? And in The Innovator's Method, you discuss four steps to solve high uncertainty problems and turn these ideas into a a successful innovation. So let's briefly summarize those and then... Maybe you can share a, a case study or two with us that illustrate how they how they work. Sure. So what we learned from studying really successful individual innovators and companies that had been able to either maintain high levels of innovation since startup like Amazon and Google, or they had sort of lost their way a little bit, and then they had been able to turbocharge their innovation by introducing some new practices and processes like Procter & Gamble and Intuit. And, and what we learned is that the really successful innovators have ways to generate insights that might lead to a new solution that would be valued in the marketplace. So an insight is your best guess as to here's a problem that's not being solved that we could solve, or here's a solution that I think we could throw out onto the market. But then you have to actually move from insight to validating there's a problem we're solving. And this is really making sure you understand the problem well enough to know that someone's willing to pay you to to meet this need or to solve this problem. And once you've nailed the problem, then you're ready to move to the solution, where you generate solutions, a wide variety of solutions going very broad, and then you figure out how to narrow to what we think of as a minimum viable product or eventually you actually want to get to a minimum awesome product because you're trying to figure those few features that that customers really care about that if you can nail those it'll really be awesome in their eyes and then finally once you have a solution you actually have to have a business model to take your solution to market that fits so the right distribution channels the right pricing strategy the right cost structure so those are the four steps to the the innovators method insight problem solution and business model. And for the benefit of our listeners, the book features a graphic that illustrates the method. And as we're talking through this, if you want to take a look at what that graphic is, so you can picture it better, you can see it in our show notes at engagingleader.com forward slash 96 as in episode 96. So Jeff, can you share a story with us or a case study that helps break that down, those four steps? Sure. So one of the early examples we give in our book is about Jenna Hyman, who was a second-year uh, student in her MBA program at the Harvard Business School. She goes home for Thanksgiving, and she's having dinner with her family, and her younger sister, Becky, is agonizing about what dress to wear 
to a, a friend's wedding event. And as she's agonizing, uh, she talks about this idea of wanting to get another designer dress, but not being able to afford it. And Jen then comes up with this idea. What if I could rent designer dresses to women who can't afford them for special occasions? So sort of use the Netflix business model to rent designer dresses as opposed to movies. So now she's had the idea of the insight, but now she's not quite sure whether this is a problem we're solving. Do a lot of you know, women have this need and would they want to rent a designer dress? So instead of writing a business plan, she goes back to Harvard and she sets up an experiment on campus. Before a big campus uh, special occasion, she sets up a place in one of the buildings on campus and she borrows begs a set of uh, hundred or so designer dresses and she just, see, just tries to see if she can rent them. And what she finds is that when they can come in and they can see the dress, they actually rent them at a very high percentage. About a third of the young ladies rented the dresses that came in. So she realized, okay, there is a need. There was a very strong uh, desire to, to be able to wear a designer dress. But if you're going to set up a lot of these, you know, booths around the, you know, kiosks around the country, that's going to be expensive. So now she wants to set up an experiment to test whether people will rent them if they could only see pictures of them. In other words, would they rent them over the Internet? So she does a test in New York City. She targets a, a thousand women in her target market and sends an email letting them know they can rent a designer dress. She just has a whole bunch of PDF pictures of a whole bunch of different dresses. And so it's a very makeshift sort of website. But what she's trying to do is test demand with a potential solution. And she learns that about 5% of the women in her target market actually will buy the solution of renting them over the internet. Now she knows she's got a problem that's worth solving and a, a, a possible solution that will work. And so then she goes to think about raising the money to invest and to launch it more, more broadly. And the business model, what she learns is it's not exactly not like Netflix. In other words, when we buy a movie, we know what we're getting and we really don't agonize too much about whether, you know, obviously it's not something we have to put on or try on or fit. She realizes her business model has to have fashion advisors or stylists who can be the advisor to this, um, this person, this woman who's wanting to rent a dress. So she has to now create a way to um, send two sizes instead of one if there are concerns about fit and provide accessories and shoes or other things that might be really useful for making this a great evening. So now she is in the, in the business of creating a, a magical evening for a woman in her life. And that business model has proven to be extremely successful. In fact, at, um, they launched about five or six years ago. And uh, I just recently read that at President Obama's second inauguration, over 80% of the women were outfitted by Rent the Runway. Isn't that amazing? But she didn't try to launch. So she wanted to make sure she nailed it before she scaled it. And so that's we talk about the importance of nailing that problem and solution before you try and scale it. And if you can test before you invest, then you take a lot of the risk out of innovation, out of trying new things. So it reduces the risk. It also reduces the cost and reduces the time to market. 
Yes, because you're doing very, very fast tests of your idea. In fact, in the book, we talk about um, the cycle of prototyping that you want to use. So you start with a theoretical prototype, which is just your um, sort of description of the concept. And it might be a storyboard. You might draw it out. But then you can go test that with lots of people very quickly. And I could test 50 theoretical prototypes in a week with a wide variety of people. And then once I figure out which ones they seem to like best, then I go to make a virtual prototype. A virtual prototype is like a mock-up. So it could be a PowerPoint presentation, or it could be a little model. It could be even a clay model, a drawing that's really clear, a storyboard that flips through. But it really creates a visual experience a little bit with your idea of your solution. Again, this can be done very quickly. And so you can test a lot of things really rapidly with virtual prototypes. Once you've come up with the virtual prototypes that people are responding to best and the key features, then you actually create what we call a minimum viable product or prototype. And that is something that is just a sort of crude working product that gets it into the hands of the the user or the customer so they can actually try it, see it, how it works And then from there, you could figure out what they really need to make it awesome. And then you start to really refine and try and make sure that the couple of features they care about most really do the job for them. And that's when you refine and then you're ready to launch to market. Now, this seems like an approach that would work well with a startup like Rent the Runway. What what would be different in terms of a, a large established company like Intuit? That's, I think, what many people are wondering is, do these practices, can they work in established companies? And, um, and at Intuit, in fact, uh, you know, Brad Smith, the CEO, said, you know, we're actually trying to create uh, a network of startups inside Intuit. So what we're trying to do, if we can, is we're trying to simulate the startup environment inside our company when we're trying to do something new. So we try and create these little startup teams. In fact, they create these lean start-in workshops where people bring ideas and they have little incubators they go to afterwards where teams can form around an idea and they can actually go and they they go through this process that I've just described inside into it. And when they're done, then they have, you know, sort of working prototypes that they can then pitch to management and then uh, they can get the funding to take them to market. Uh, I think it is more difficult inside established organizations because, let's face it, established organizations already have customers, so they're already trying to meet the needs of those customers, and it's very easy to get dominated by just continuing to focus on existing customers and existing needs rather than trying new things. So you often have to try and create the separation, uh, sort of separate sort of startup teams, skunk work teams where you give them the opportunity to try things in a way that's a little bit separate from the established organization, which is really designed for planning and executing and meeting the needs of existing customers. And and that's a little bit tricky because it means you have one style of management for really the existing customers um, where you're pretty sure you know what they need and you're just trying to, you know, to execute and be optim, you know, optimized as you meet those needs. But then when you're trying new things, you have to be able to sort of separate it and you need to try this experimenting and pivoting approach 
um, and try and do it with these sort of rapid um, pivot cycles and experimenta- experimentation cycles that I've just described. Is there any research, I'm wondering, uh, you talk about how you need to have a couple, two different types of management approaches, if you will, but I'm also wondering about the people that we're leading. Uh, should, is it better to acknowledge that there's maybe two different types of people? There's the sort of maintainers that are doing a great job serving existing customers, and then there's the innovators over here, or is it better to... Uh, uh, expect that everybody has a certain amount of their uh, responsibilities that should be focused on innovating and and problem solving. When um, I did some earlier research um, that is published in a book called Innovator's DNA, which is the predecessor to the Innovator's Method, uh, and this was a book uh, with Clayton Christensen and Hal Gregerson, where we looked at the characteristics of business innovators that seem to allow them to generate insights or ideas. So this is really the first stage of the innovator's method is around insight. When we did that, we actually developed an assessment to look at the extent to which people were strong on the innovation side, but also the extent to which they were strong on the execution side. And if you think of a two by two um, with innovation on one, innovation skills and execution skills, you can imagine some people would be really good at innovation. Some people would really be good at execution in the bottom right-hand corner. And um, then the question is, do you just fit people to the task? I think there's a lot to be said for fitting people to the task. Some people are just more comfortable in a more routine environment executing on what what is known. And others are much more comfortable, innovators on the innovation side, where they're really trying new things. So I, I do think there is something to trying to match people with their natural propensities. However, let me say this. What we found in our study of the leaders of companies in Forbes' 100 Most Innovative Companies list, and this is a list that we actually uh, generate um, using a a methodology we call the innovation premium methodology, which is how much of a premium are investors paying um, for this stock because they're expecting future growth and innovations. And what we found is that the leaders of those companies – score at the 88th percentile on innovation skills and about the 56th percentile on execution skills. So their core competencies are around innovation and execution tends to be secondary. And then, of course, they do have people who would, you know, that work with them who are strong on the execution side. When we looked at a match sample of companies that were not in the, For- the Forbes 100 most innovative companies list, We found those leaders, CEOs and senior management leaders, were 80th percentile for execution and about 60th percentile for innovation. So they led more out of execution. So what's the point? The point is that if you want a company that is good at innovating, you need somebody who understands both sides. But in particular, you need folks who really understand how to lead innovation. Wow, that's fascinating. Jeff, we've been summarizing the four steps of the innovator's method. The book goes deeper, though, with key activities and tools for each step, as well as tests for each step so that you know if you've resolved the uncertainties enough to have confidence in your innovation. Could you give us an example or two of the kind of tests that you're describing? Yeah, what we found is that most of us really need guidance 
on how to implement the process I've talked about. So for example, let's say you have a theoretical prototype and you go try it out with a number of people. Well, how do I know whether to progress to a virtual prototype to move to that visual mock-up? Um, so one of the tests we suggest is what we call the wow test. The wow test is a test where you can actually get at least a hundred people to say, wow, or some sort of form of that is awesome. Now, a hundred sounds like a lot, but when you're trying to launch something new, if you can get a hundred people to say, wow, that's a great idea, then you're probably ready to move to creating something that is more visible, like the virtual prototype. So now you do your mock-up and now you're showing people this sort of rough sketch or the PowerPoint presentation of how this sort of looks. And from there, once they've been able to see um, how this product works, the, the next question we would often ask is, do you like this enough to recommend it to a friend? It's, it's called the Net Promoter Score. And what you want to do is you want to get a 9 or 10 on a 10-point scale of likely to share it with a friend. And uh, if you don't get at least 80% of people saying they'll recommend it to a friend, then you got to keep working. Um, trying different things in the mock-up where you're getting people who really say, yeah, I would, I would share this. I would want to share this with a friend. I think it's so great. Once you get that 80% or above, now you're ready to actually create a working product. And this is your minimum viable product. So it's basically, you know, sort of relatively crude, but it's starting to work. And when you're, um, when you're trying this out with people, what you want to then do is perhaps try the payment test to see if you finally have a product that people might be willing to pay for. And this is very simple. It's sort of, what would you be willing to pay for this if I could give you the full working functioning version today? And you've got to make sure people are, are, are willing to pay. And in fact, you want to, if you can, even see if they're willing to give you credit card information, um, which shows that they would be willing to pay. Um, in fact, I know Intuit, when they do this, they will have things you can buy online um, it's a payment test. When you go in to put your credit card information, they don't actually take it all. What they do is they have a screen that pops up that says, you know, the product isn't quite ready yet, but thanks for your willingness to purchase. We will now contact you when it's ready. And then you've got a set of customers who have essentially said they're ready to pre-order. So those are the sort of concrete tests that will take you through to get to your minimum awesome product. And so we try and walk you through the tools that you need in order to run the experiments and the tests that you need to use to know whether you've sort of nailed that step and you're ready to move forward. Hmm. Well, Jeff, where can people find out more about the book as well as you and your work? If you go to uh, innovatorsdna.com or you go to iMethod at innovatorsdna.com, what you'll find is a website that has lots of information and tools um, from the Innovators DNA and also from the Innovators Method. Um, and, and we have their uh, free samples of the introduction and chapter one of the Innovators Method and also of the Innovators DNA. So you could re read and peruse. Uh, if you were interested in taking an assessment, that, like I talked about before, the Innovators DNA assessment, to know whether you're more of an innovator or an executor and where you fall, you could also go to innovatorsdna.com to take that assessment and learn more about the kinds of uh, training tools that we have that might help you be a more effective innovation leader or your team or organization. 
Once again, the book is The Innovator's Method, Bringing the Lean Startup into Your Organization. Jeff Dyer, thanks for joining us on Engaging Leader. Hey, thanks, Jesse. Glad to be here today. Just a quick recap. The Innovator's Method consists of these four steps. Number one, insight, which is about savoring surprises. Step two is the problem. It's about discovering the job to be done. Step three is the solution, where you prototype the minimum awesome product. And step four is the business model. Validate the go-to-market strategy. All right, Engagers, that wraps up this episode. Again, we'll provide the information and links that Jeff mentioned, as well as the graphic that shows that uh, the Innovator's Method on our show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website at engagingleader.com forward slash 96 as in episode 96. And while you're on the show notes page, you can engage with us by providing your thoughts or questions in the comments section or by clicking the red send voicemail button. You can also engage with us at facebook.com forward slash engaging leader or on Twitter where I am at Jesse Leahy. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with midsize and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Terrence, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of each opportunity to engage the people we care about. 